What's up, Coastal Community Church? My name is TJ, and I'm one of the pastors here. We're so glad that you're joining us online this weekend for church. And listen, if you did not hear the big announcement that came out this week, maybe you haven't been checking your email or haven't been paying attention to social media, which might actually be a good idea for your life right now. I just want to let you in. Uh, Barring any unforeseen circumstances, we have a comeback to church date coming up for you in July. It's going to be the weekend of July 11th and 12th, and all the details uh, are going to be coming out this week of what that is going to look like for us on our website. But we are so excited to be able to not just gather online with you because we've loved doing that in this season, but we are also going to have the opportunity to come back together practicing social distancing standards and and all the recommendations from the CDC, but to come back together and worship together in this room, to to put our kids back in kids' ministry so they can have not just an online experience, but an in-person experience with Coastal Kids. And we are so excited that we're going to be able to do that together coming up very, very shortly. But we have been in a series called Freeway over the last four weeks, and we have been talking about how do we walk out this path of living a life of complete and total freedom? Because that is the goal for every single one of us is that we would be able to walk in freedom and the acceptance of everything that God has for each and every one of our lives. And if you're just joining us online for the first time or maybe the first time in a long time, it's going to feel like you just walked into the middle of a movie and you're going to be like, hey, I I need a little bit of ketchup. I get that. And so I want to help you out because we are in step five of a six-step process. And we talked about the first week, in, in case you weren't here, we talked about this idea of awareness. And we said the fact that all of us are a mess and 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 we've got to recognize that we're a mess, but what happens is we become aware when we discover we're a mess, but we experience freedom because we realize that we are God's mess and God has got a purpose and he has got a plan and he is not afraid of our mess, but wants to work in the midst of our mess. And it says the second week we talked about this whole idea of discovery and the fact that as we become aware of the mess, we start to look into the messes that maybe we've shut off for a while and we realize there are some deep and some dark and some desperate areas of our lives that God wants to work on inside of every single one of us. And it's so easy for us in those seasons to blame other people for those discoveries, but what God wants us to do is to take step three, which is ownership, and realize that, man, the things that have happened in life may not be our faults, but they are our responsibility. We have a responsibility in how we respond, how we move forward in life, and so while things may have happened to you, those things do not have to define you for the rest of your life because you can take ownership of your life and begin to move past those things and move forward in those things. And then last week we talked about forgiveness. And we said the, the, the path to freedom goes through the doorway of forgiveness. And there are some things in life that we need to forgive other people for. But there are also some things in life that we need to forgive ourselves for. Because sometimes the hardest person to forgive isn't somebody that hurts you. It's yourself because you feel like, man, I allowed myself to have that happen to me. And we said it's so important that we understand and we forgive because you don't always forgive other people to free them. You forgive so that you become free yourself. And this week, we're going to be diving in and we're going to be talking about acceptance. And acceptance is really 
about identity. It's about us identifying with the correct identity in life and, and not just who we think we are, but who God actually says that each and every one of us are. And so I want to start off this week by telling you a story, and it's a story that is a, it's a, it's a story from God's Word, and it's one of my favorite stories from Scripture because, honestly, it's, it's one of the most messed up stories in the Bible. In fact, if you're sitting there at home and you're thinking to yourself, man, I come from a messed up background. My family is jacked up, screwed up. They got issues like nobody's ever seen the kind of issues that we have. I would just told you, tell you to hold up and wait a second because if you start to read stories from the Bible, you'll realize that the majority of these people, they came from jacked up families with tons of issues. And the story we're going to look at today is with a family that's got so many issues. And this story is found in the book of Genesis, and it's, it's this story of, uh, of a man named Isaac, and he marries a woman named Rebecca. They end up having two little boys, and uh, these two little boys are, are they're twins. They're born uh, on the same day. One of them happens to be born a minute before the other ones. Their names are Jacob and Esau. Now, Esau was born early, and that isn't really a big deal in our culture, but back in that day, the firstborn child had the rights to money and power. Like, they got everything, and so if you were born back in biblical days, the first, you had all the money, and you had all the power. The two things that most people are chasing in life is money and power, and Jacob, the younger son, he grows up, and uh, he he wants a relationship with his dad, but his dad favors the older brother Esau. And because of that, he gets neglected. And Jacob has all of these unhealthy relationships with his dad. He has unhealthy relationships with his mom. And he fights a ton with his brother. Some of you parents at home right now that have children, you know exactly what that's like because your kids are fighting back and forth all the time. You're like, man, I just wish school would come back during summer because I'm ready for these kids to get away from me because all they do is fight all day long. That's exactly what's happening in this family. And so what happens is, is one day, Jacob deceives his brother out of his birthright. And so Jacob deceives Esau. And so now Jacob has all the money and the power. And so immediately what Esau does is he vows to kill Jacob. And Jacob does what any younger brother would do in that situation. He runs. And he runs away and he runs to a faraway land. He actually runs to his uncle Laban's house, which is his mother's brother. And that's where we're going to pick up the story in Genesis chapter 29. And this is what it says. It says, now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Now, it's interesting how this was laid out because it, the, the, the Bible says that Leah had weak eyes, which makes you think that maybe she has some bad vision, but that's not really what the Bible is saying. When the Bible says that Leah has weak eyes, what it's saying is, is Leah actually got hit by the ugly stick. Like, Leah was ugly. On the flip side, uh, Rachel was beautiful and had this great figure and was all that in a bag of chips. Not my story, God's story, just FYI. It says, Jacob was in love with Rachel and said, I'll work for seven years in return for your daughter, Rachel. Laban said, it is better that I give her to you than some other man. Stay here with me. So Jacob served seven years to get Rachel, but they seemed like only a few days to him because of his love 
for her. Now, in our culture, we would look at that and we'd go, that is so sweet. I mean, Jacob is so romantic. I mean, if, if this was our day and age, we'd make a, a rom-com about this. And, and, and Jacob would be played by maybe like Ryan Gosling. And he'd be like, hey, girl, I'll serve seven years for you. And, and girls would just like, oh, my gosh, it's so romantic. But the reality is, is this is actually sick. Because this is not a romantic thing. This is a sick thing. In fact, if you were to go to the next verse in verse 21, it says, then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife. My time is completed. I want to make love to her. Now, just an FYI, if you're a single guy out there watching online, there is going to come a time and a place that you're going to fall in love with a lovely young lady, and you're going to have the opportunity to do the honorable thing and go to her father and go, hey, you know what? I love your daughter. I would like to marry her one day. My, uh, my thought to you would be not to approach him with this line, give me your daughter because I want to have sex with her. That's basically what he's saying right here. Not a good line. You'll probably get rejected right there. Just FYI, so don't do that. Uh, it's not going to turn out good for you if you do. But what you have here in this story is you have Jacob, who is a young man who's, who's in love, and it's more than in love. He's fixed all of the longings of his heart on this woman thinking that man if I can just be in a relationship with her like she will satisfy my deepest my my greatest longings of my life and 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 he is just completely obsessed with this one girl and you you would ask yourself like why is he so obsessed with this girl and all you have to do is look at his life and you'll realize that all throughout his life there is a lot of emptiness Think about it. He spent his whole life trying to get his father's approval and constantly getting rejected. And some of you know exactly what that's like. You've spent your entire life trying to get your dad to recognize your accomplishment, your feat. You just want him to see you for who you are and love you for who you are. And all you've caught was a bunch of emptiness. And you've wanted that love, but you've never felt or experienced that love. And let me just tell you, that will drive you to all kinds of unhealthy choices in life. And so you have that going on. You, you also have a codependent relationship with his mom. Not a psychologist, but I can see that going on. He's got a brother who hates him and wants to kill him. Also, if you were to understand biblical times, um, they made a lot of theological assumptions about their life. And, and so they made this assumption that if their life was going well, then God must be with them and God must love them. And God must think that they're doing really well. On the flip side of that, if their life is not going very well, then God has abandoned them. God is not pleased with them. God does not love them. And so what you see here is a young man with a lot of, lot of emptiness inside. And he thinks, man, if I could just get this one girl, this one girl would fix all of that. It'd make me whole. It would make me complete. And what he's doing is he's saying, man, I'm going to rely solely and completely on her to fill the deepest, darkest needs of my life. Now, what's interesting is this gentleman named Laban, who is his uncle, picks up on some of these insecurities. And so he's going to trick 
Jacob in verse 22, it says, So Laban brought together all the people of the places and gave a feast. But when evening came, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob. Now, now understand the story, remember? Leah is the one that got hit by the ugly stick. And Rachel is the one that is super attractive. But there was a big party that happened before this. And apparently, Jacob must have had too much to drink. He was trying to fill some other aspects of emptiness in his life with some other things. And some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. Because right now, you're, you're popping another pill. You're eating another donut. You're doing whatever it takes in this moment to fill a void in your life so you don't have to deal with the pain and the reality of it. And so that's exactly what's happening here. And Laban brings Leah, and, and he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and Jacob made love to her. And Laban gave his servant Zilpah to his daughter as her attendant. When morning came, Jacob rolls over, and there was Leah. Now imagine that night, you think that you just got everything you were looking for and you wake up and it's the wrong person. You would feel a little deceived in that moment. So Jacob said to Laban, what is this you have done to me? I served you for Rachel. Now how would you feel if you're Leah in that moment? Didn't I? Why have you deceived me? And so if you don't know how the story ends, Laban says, hey, serve seven more years and I'll give you Rachel as well. And he does. And uh, when he marries her, it becomes a disaster. And because he's fixed all of his meaning, all of his purpose, all of his love on this one woman. And I love what one commentator wrote about this passage. He says, this whole story is a miniature of our disillusionment, no matter what we put our hopes in, in the morning, it's always Leah, never Rachel. There's a lot of truth to that, isn't there? No matter what it is that we put all of our hopes and our dreams and our aspirations into, thinking that, man, if I just get this, then it will satisfy everything in my heart and in my life and in the emptiness inside of me. And so many of us have gone and chased after those things and achieved those things. And we woke up the next day and we're like, wow, even though I worked so hard to get that, I'm still empty. In other words, you realize it wasn't all that it was cracked up to be. What happens is we get driven by Fear and insecurity and this false sense of identity. And if we're honest, that's what a lot of us are driven by. We're driven by this sense that I'm not worthy, I'm not accepted, I'm not somebody. And not only does that impact our life that we live on the exterior, but it impacts the life we live in our interior, our faith life. Because now it's not just that you weren't enough for your dad or you weren't enough for that spouse or you're not talented enough for that group of friends. Now it's, I think God loves me, but I'm pretty sure he's disappointed in me. Because when you're driven by insecurity, you're driven by fear, not only do you not measure up to the expectations of others around you, 
But what ends up happening is, is you don't ever feel like you measure up to God's expectations either. And this is something that we have to understand. And it's this. Listen, I'm not defined by my works or others' labels. I'm defined by God's love. Listen, you are not defined by your works or other people's labels. You know what you're defined by? You're defined by God's love. And so many of us, we're really, really great about understanding that God died for us and that God forgives us. But somewhere along the way, we've, we've gotten confused to where we, are, we find our identity because we have found our identity so much in works and so much in the labels that people and things and accomplishment have given to each and every one of us. And so if I were to have a chance to come to your house or go to a coffee shop and sit down with you and just have a conversation, this, this, is, this is basically what I would tell you. And it doesn't matter whether you've been a Christian for decades or you just started being a Christ follower a little while ago. It, it, all of us start our faith at the same place. We all start our faith at this place called the cross. And as you can see, I'm a fantastic artist, and uh, I just want to share those skills with you. But we all start our, our faith at the cross, and, and at the cross is where we find grace and mercy and forgiveness. But after we go to the cross, we have choices. And there's usually a, a couple of different paths that we can choose to walk in in life. And in particular, there's two paths that we we can choose to walk in. One of the paths that we can take is this path called pleasing. And I'm going to try to spell everything right because this is on camera and y'all are going to see. And so we can take this path of pleasing or there's this other path called trusting. Now, now these are two very, very distinct paths. And, and the, the path of pleasing is this idea that I am going to take and I'm going to work on my sin in life. I'm going to take this path and what I'm going to do is I'm going to go and work on my sin. And it sounds so Christian and so heroic and so, so right uh, because I want to please God by working on my sin issues. Uh, in other words, this is a bunch of self-effort. Like if I put in all of this effort, it's going to change everything. Uh, that's how we look at it in Christianity. If you were to look at it in psychology, they would call this behavior modification. So how I'm going to please God is I am going to modify my behavior. And based on modifying my behavior, therefore God will be pleased with me. The problem is, is that when we go to living by trying to please God, by modifying our behavior, all of a sudden we start to negate the grace of the cross. Because it's by grace that we're saved, not by our good works. But yet what happens is when we're trying to please God, what we're trying to do is we're trying to justify our goodness by our good works. We're trying to prove that we are good enough, that we are worthy enough, that we are accepted enough, that we are loved enough based on what we can do for God to love us. See, grace isn't just something that saves you. 
it is also the very thing that should be sustaining you. The other path that we can choose to take is trusting. And it's saying, man, I'm going to trust in God. I'm going to trust God with every aspect of my life. In fact, even the parts that I don't like, which is my sin. I'm trusting that my identity is found in Christ, not in others' labels. I'm trusting that my sin is as far as the east is from the west. I'm trusting that when he said it is forgiven, that is completely and totally gone. I am trusting that uh, my sins of the past and my sins of the future, that God can take care of every single one of them. And there is a big difference between these two paths. In fact, there, I didn't do a good job of showing it. But there is a catastrophic gap between these two. And like taking the path of trusting God seems like a no-brainer. The problem is, is it doesn't seem very heroic or right. Like I'm just going to trust God because we all have a tendency like to want to prove ourselves over and over and over again. Because we think that by sinning less and trusting God to work on us, that's, that's, there, there's a difficulty there. And what happens is, is it's hard to trust because we always have a tendency to go back to striving, to go back to effort, to go back to ability, to going back to I've got to make this happen. What's interesting to me when my motivation is Trusting God in life, what I discover is that God is already pleased with me. I wrote it down like this. Pleasing God is actually a byproduct of trusting God. Now, there's a reason we typically drift back to path number one of pleasing God. And, uh, and that's because all of us have a really, really desperate desire for love. It's true of every single one of us. Whether you're 10 or 100, whether you're single or you're married, whether you have $10 to your name or $10 million to your name, every single one of us is desperate for love. Secondly, what I think complicates it for most of us is is we are convinced for some reason that God's love for us is limited and conditional. And the reason we struggle with that is because in life, people's love is limited and conditional. And listen, we're not the first people to struggle with this concept. There's actually this great passage where the Apostle Paul is addressing this with the church, um, with the Galatian church. And, and he says this in Galatians chapter 2, verses 15 through 18. He says, we Jews... Know that we have no advantage of birth over non-Jewish sinners. We know very well that we are not set right with God by rule keeping, but only through a personal faith in Jesus Christ. In other words, he goes, listen, hey, both paths are right here. The rule keeping, that's the pleasing thing. Like we're not set right by trying to do all the rules. Like we, we tried that and that didn't work. But we are set right by a personal faith in Jesus Christ. In other words, I got to trust God 
So you see path one and path two in this scripture. He says, how do we know? We've tried it. We have the very best system of rules the world has ever seen. Convinced that no human being can please God by self-improvement. We believed in Jesus as the Messiah so that we might be set right before God by trusting in the Messiah, not by trying to be good. Have some of you noticed that we are not yet perfect? He says, not a great surprise, right? Are you ready to make accusations that since people like me who go through Christ in order to get things right with God aren't perfectly virtuous, Christ must therefore be an accessory to sin. The accusation is frivolous. If I was trying to be good, I would be rebuilding the same old barn that I tore down. I would be acting as a charlatan. This is so key for us as Christ followers because what he's saying is before Christ, a lot of us are set on this path one. We're pleasing God. We're, we're like, we're getting to this place where, man, I gotta try to please God. I'm gonna please God. I'm gonna please God. And the more that we try, the more that we find out that there is not enough that we can do to please God. And when you realize that, you've been building these barns and no matter how beautiful they are, they're not good enough. What you do is you tear it all down and go, God, I just trust you. And you start off, you, you move to here. But after a while, what do we do? We go back to trying to build barns again and again and again. Now, don't misunderstand me. Pleasing God is a great motivation. And all of us, our desire should be to please God. But the ultimate thing for every single one of us is that we would try with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength to actually trust God. Because if your primary motivation is to please God, you're gonna be imprisoning yourself for the rest of your life. See, living for acceptance and love is slavery. That's what this is. When I'm living for that, I'm enslaved to you because I need that from you. You can pull me to the left. You can pull me to the right. You can pull me forward. You can pull me back. But living from acceptance and love is freedom. It's a huge difference between those two. Only got a few minutes left, and I, I, I got a few verses and so I, I want to give you these. If you've been a Christian for a long time or you're a brand new Christian, um, these are three verses I'd love for you to ponder this week. The first one is Colossians chapter 1, verse 27. It says, To them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is in Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Think about this. Paul wrote about half of the New Testament. And if you were to look at the Apostle Paul's writing, you would find out that out of the entire New Testament, the Apostle Paul quotes Jesus three times. Three times he quotes the words of Jesus. Now you would think somebody that wrote uh, half of the New Testament would quote Jesus a whole lot more often. But he only quotes him three, three times. But do you know how many times the Apostle Paul uses the phrase, Christ in you or or?" In reverse, in Christ, he uses that phrasing 160 times. 
Now, why is that? Why would he use that phrasing that many times? Now, now, obviously, you know, what Christ did and what Christ said why he was on earth was an important element. But what I'm saying is, is, is Paul was not necessarily obsessed by what Jesus said. He was obsessed by what Jesus did. He was obsessed by the fact that Jesus went to the cross and died on the cross. He resurrected from the grave. He ascended to heaven. And at that moment, when he ascended into heaven, what he said is, I'm going to put my spirit inside of every single believer. And this is why he talked about it 160 times. Because there is a huge distinction between the Old Testament and the New Testament. See, in the Old Testament, it was God was with you. God was with Abraham. God was with Isaac. God was with Jacob. God was with all kinds of people. In fact, when Jesus came to this earth, he was called Emmanuel, God with us. But when Jesus died and resurrected, Jesus said, hey, I'm going to do something even better than being with you. I'm going to put my spirit inside of you, which is why Paul put so much emphasis on the fact that, man, God is no longer with us. God is living inside of us. And this is huge because so many people go, man, I wish I would have been around in the time of Jesus and I could have walked with him and I could have talked with him and I could have seen the miracles. But Jesus gave you something far greater than you just seeing him. He said, man, I'm going to put my spirit inside of you so that you can live and breathe me. And it's amazing. He's giving you this distinction that he is in you the hope of glory. Second verse, 1 John chapter 4, verses 13 through 16. says, this is how we know that we live in him and him in us. He has given us his spirit, and we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them and they in God. So we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God, and God is in them. And this is the distinction. It's not that we know about the love of God because most people believe God loves you. Like, hey, does God love you? Yeah, man, God loves me. Almost virtually every single person would answer that question. Yeah, God loves me. My question is, is do you rely on the love of God in your life? Like, is it the thing that you fall back into? Is it the thing that you are trusting in, in life? Or is it the thing that you're trying to please to earn? See, my problem is, is I've gotten about half that verse right. But the second half of really relying on his love It's not necessarily always the center of how I'm doing my life. See, most of us were taught that God would love us if and when we change. But the fact is, is that God loves you so that you can change. He doesn't love you when or if. He loves you so you can. See, it's not just enough to say God loves me. You got to ask yourself the question, am I relying on that love? And is that love forming and shaping and transforming me 
in this life. Because if we're honest, a lot of us were relying on performance. We're relying on that label that we've been given. We're relying on those views that people have put on us. And your identity isn't being shaped and formed on God's love. And how I know that is because you've been waiting for that guy to come into your life. And you think, man, when I get him, my identity will be complete. Or you're waiting for that job that'll come along and all of a sudden it will make you that person. Or for that raise so you'll be at this value. And the idea is that I know and I rely on the love of God. Because this love right here that I'm talking about, this kind of love changes everything for everyone if they can experience it. This love right here is not conditional. This love right here will never leave you. This love right here will never forsake you. This love right here will actually make you whole. It will make you free. One more verse, Psalms 139, verses 13 and 14 says, For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. And this isn't a new idea for many of you, but it's this idea that you were created by God. But do you know why God loves you? You want to know why God loves you? It's because you're his. You're his. That's, that's why he loves you. He looked at this universe. He looked at this world. And he looked around and he said, you know what? You know what I need? I need you. I need you to be a part of this creation, this life that I have made. Like you are unique. You are distinct. You are one of a kind. But more importantly... You're mine. My wife and I, uh, about a week ago, we had the opportunity to go over to a, a woman's house that had just had a baby. I, I know we're supposed to be social distancing, but it, she has three other kids, and so a fourth was on the way. Her husband was out of town. She needed some food, and so we were bringing her a, a meal, and we went over, and, and we were there, and she had this maybe a, a, a couple weeks old baby, and spitting up and, and I was just watching this mom with this baby and, and I don't know if you, you've, you have children or you've ever, uh, as, as a father it's a little bit different. I understand that there's this unique love that moms have uh, because they carry a child and, and therefore there's this bond but like dads don't really have that. We don't really contribute much to the process. We have some work on the front end and then we don't really do anything the rest of the way and so like when, when a child is born for like dad it's like, inter, it's like meeting a, a, a foreigner for the first time and so I, I remember when we got Alexander from the hospital, and, uh, and I remember when I, I picked him up for the first time, and, and I was like, this is a child that I've never met before in my entire life, and instantaneously, I was madly in love with this child. Like, like, this child was mine. Like, I was protective of him. I would punch you in the face if you said something about his, his hair or whatever. I just didn't care why, because that child was mine, and, and that baby actually contributed nothing to my life. 
Like that, in fact, for the first couple of months of that, that baby's life, all he did was subtract from my life. I had to change poopy diapers. I had to be up all the time. Like he spit up all the time. Like it was not a pleasant experience, but that did not detract my love for him. Why? Because that child was mine. He's mine. You know, I talk to people all the time that say, I can't wait to, you know, meet my hero or superstar or whatever they've put somebody in this pedestal with. And and I remember as a kid, that's what I always thought as well. But I think about it today. When when my son starts playing sports, uh, I'm going to go, man, I'm going to get one of those t-shirts that say, man, I'm not. I'm not one of those parents that can't wait to meet their hero because I'm raising him. He's going to be a world changer. He's going to be a hero to many. I'm his number one fan. Celebrate everything he does, man. He, he picks up toys, man. We're going to celebrate. He told me the other day, like, I got a poopy. I was like, that's so good, son. Thank you for not sitting in that. Like, that's, that's an accomplishment. Why? Because I'm his number one fan. I love him. Like, he's mine. I know some of you are like, TJ, what are you talking about? I'm here to remind you that you are God's son and that you're God's daughter. That you're his. That he loves you. That he's your number one fan. And he wants nothing more for you to realize and recognize There's nothing that you can do to earn or achieve that love. All you have to do is accept it and trust. Trust. And know that you are accepted and loved. By God. Will you guys bow your heads? I just want to take a second with every head bowed and every eye closed, where no matter where you are, if you're driving down the road, please do not close your eyes. But I just want you to think about something because we live in this world that is constantly bombarding us with what you are or what you're not. And as I close in prayer, I I just want you to know who you are. So I just want you to take a second. Relax, take a deep breath, and listen to these words because here's what Scripture says you are. You are accepted. You are His child. You are His workmanship. You are His friend. You're His vessel. You are His witness, His ambassador, His instrument. You are chosen. You are forgiven. You are adopted. You are complete. You are sanctified, loved eternally. You are light. You are a city on a hill. You're secure. You're more than a conqueror. You are healed. You are sheltered. You are constantly on his mind. You're at peace. You're favored. You are God's perfect design. You are significant. You are loved. 
lavishly loved. You are his child. You are accepted. You are his. God, I just pray right now for every person that's out there that's watching or listening right now, that they would not just hear those words, but they would let those words sink to the depths of their soul. To know that they are accepted and they are loved right where they are. And God, I pray that you would saturate them from the top of their head to the bottom of their feet in the depths of your love. That there's nothing they can do or accomplish or achieve for you to love them anymore. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.